and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Jupiter Ascending, the 2015 space opera blockbuster written and directed by the Wachowskis. Mila Kunis stars in a Cinderella story about a Russian-American immigrant who finds out that she is the reincarnation of an alien queen. Guarded by a genetically engineered werewolf super soldier played by Channing Tatum, she embarks on an epic power struggle with an immortal royal dynasty who plan to kill and harvest the human race. Uh, so this episode was sponsored by two of our Patreon patrons, Elizabeth and Carolyn. We also recorded an audio commentary track for the movie. So if you want to rewatch Jupiter Ascending, you can actually watch that with our audio commentary in your ears, giving you, you know, like a play-by-play or whatever um, on Channing Tatum's hair dye situation. That's available on our Patreon page for anyone who subscribes. So um, throw some money over there and rewatch the amazing it's film. It's available for, for subscribers at $3 and up. So that's the, the tier ah, at which yes. you must subscribe. So $3 yes. is what you must pay in order to listen to our uh, stunning insights into this film. Elite two hours worth of intensive expert Jupiter Ascending commentary. This movie, obviously great film um as listeners know i love the wachowskis we also recently did a matrix episode so this is kind of we're we're in the zone at the moment and this film is a real cult favorite i feel like probably most of our target audience has probably seen this film but for those who aren't aware when it came out it kind of had a bit of a dodgy critical response you know it wasn't hugely positively reviewed and a lot of the kind of traditional sci-fi blockbuster audience for um, the Wachowski's movies, especially The Matrix, were not particularly impressed. But this film now has like a really intensive cult following because it has this sort of very opulent, feminine Disney princess vibe that was a very intentional part of its creative vision. <laughs> it is it is just an absolute Disney princess kind of story. Very fairy tale, very girly, very wish fulfillment-y. Channing Tatum has wings. It's great. Yes, I think that happens right at the very end of the movie, very briefly, and we both immediately were like, Hollywood understands nothing about what women want. Like, <laughs> why isn't this... Just, like, the fact there aren't, like, more films where someone like Channing Tatum, like, wraps his wings around a small woman. <laughs> it's like, come on! Come on! <laughs> well, I mean, I think we should probably just talk about the response straight off the bat before even going into the movie, because that is the beginning of the story of this film, right? When it first came out, I don't think I even really had it on my radar before it was released. I probably had seen a trailer at some point, but I certainly wasn't really thinking about it. And then when it was released, it got a lot of very negative reviews from mainstream critics, most of whom are men. And then there was pretty immediately a backlash against that from other people, mainly women, who were just like, no, this movie is amazing. And it didn't make any money, but there definitely was a contingent of people who went and saw it as a sort of cult exercise. And I... (laughs) Yeah, I think, as I recall, I saw it, and then I went back to the cinema with a bunch of different friends and brought them, like, five days later. Yeah, I went with a friend of mine to a big multiplex cinema in Manhattan, and it obviously was not even remotely full but there, we were not the only people there. Like, there was a, enough people so that you had a sense of the audience reaction for sure. And um, everyone was having a great time. Like, it was a great movie-going experience. And it definitely... I think there were a couple people in that audience, now that I'm thinking about it, who clearly just were not on the movie's wavelength, like, 
at all and were like, what the fuck is happening? And then a lot of people who did get it, including us. And it was such an interesting example of a movie that just was not what people thought they were getting at all. And to be fair, clearly had been like five hours long in the original cut and then had to be cut down. And so some of the stuff just yeah. genuinely makes no sense because they had explained it at one point and then didn't in the final one. Like at one point, Sean Bean, who's a sort of supporting character, makes some comment about how he's motivated to do something because his daughter has some disease. And like, I don't think they've ever explained. We saw her cough once at the beginning of the movie, and then it's like an hour and a half later, it's like, yes, my daughter's dying, so I had to betray you. And it's like, well, also, he like refers to the disease as though it's something we know exists. And I don't think it's ever been referred to before, right? So it's not like this is a perfect movie, and I can understand why some people would be just like, what is happening? But for my money, it is very effective as like a fun, silly thing and it's so unlike most blockbusters in that it is you know designed for a different target audience i.e me that i was like great thank you (laughs) love it i mean i think also it's like another alongside the matrix it's another really good kind of illustration of the wachowskis being like on the zeitgeist because they've made several films that arrived at precisely the right moment or slightly before and have had this really big cultural impact like v for vendetta now popularized like the mask that came from the comics and had this huge kind of knock-on effect even though the film itself is like so-so and with this movie it arrived just before sort of the tipping point where everyone just started talking so much about female audiences being under-recognized and films not catering to women and that sort of thing and it's very clear kind of reading interviews and stuff with the filmmakers that this was all completely intentional. It's not like they accidentally made a film that was very sort of feminine and corny and romantic. You know, this was what they wanted to do, right? Because the main negative response to this, I mean, obviously, like, critics had more kind of complex criticisms of the film, including, you know, like Morgan mentioned, the fact that there's random parts, like, clearly were meant to fit into, like, a four-hour-long movie. But, um... There was a lot of kind of conversation at the time that was like, Mila Kunis's character is so weak, like she's really just like this damsel in distress and people weren't into it because it was all sort of romance and a lot of, Channing Tatum is one of these actors who a lot of people are like, oh, they don't respect him because he's done these movies that are kind of aimed at women, <laughs> like Magic Mike, which like always happens, you know, and it's like, he knows what's up and he is a very good comedy actor and is great in this in a completely ridiculous, absurd role. But kind of the point of this story is that it is meant to be an intentional reversal of that classic hero's journey adventure. Like, this is a really tropey movie. It's about someone discovering that they have a secret magical royal destiny and then she goes off and, like, various evil people are trying to marry her or kidnap her and then her sexy werewolf boyfriend saves her and she has to wear loads of great outfits and stuff. And kind of the point of it is that she is not a fighter. She's not a warrior, but... She has value as a person. She is like a person. She feels realistic. She's very funny. She is a go-getter. Like she's intentionally kind of flirting with Kane Wise, uh, Channing Tatum's character, which is quite rare, especially in this type of film where characters just sort of drift together. And a lot of time, there's not a lot of thought put into their romantic chemistry. I actually found a quote from Lana Wachowski talking about kind of their initial plan for this. And she kind of talks about how the main character is inspired by 
Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz and also Alice in Wonderland, who are these two kind of classic female fantasy characters who have this, like, a different kind of image than being, like, a stoic hero. And what she said was, we hadn't made a romance since Bound, which was their first movie. It was before The Matrix and it was a lesbian romance. And she said, I was desperate to make one, hence Jupiter and Kane in this film. And we remembered how in The Matrix we were obsessed with time and never having enough production time. That was our private joke. What if you made a story about mining time and you could take away some of it from someone else? Because we read Marx when we were high school kids and it influences you forever. So what you've got is they've made this film, which is partly like a Marxist diatribe against the ruling classes and partly a really corny romance about someone trying on lots of dresses and getting swept away by a handsome werewolf man who obeys her every word. And then you end up with this film, which is also spent like, you know, $200 million on really shiny, sparkly gold Rococo spaceships. (laughs) It's great. Yes. My one other comment about the sort of female audience thing before we get into the rest of the details of the movie, which also has to do with Channing Tatum and sort of Marxism also in a way, is that the one of the other big summer movies this year, I guess this came out sort of fallish, was Magic Mike XXL, which also starred Channing Tatum. <laughs> and Incredible movie. Sublime. So good. And that also had a huge amount of discourse around it in terms of, like, movies being made for women, right? Which obviously doesn't mean that, you know, non-female people cannot enjoy them. I actually saw Magic Mike XXL sitting next to, I believe, a man and his son, both of whom certainly presented as heterosexual. I obviously don't know, but they had a great time. I mean, of the group of friends that I watched the two Magic Mikes with, the person who enjoyed it the most alongside me was the straight man. So. So this film is However, <laughs> certainly the intended sort of ideal audience for that movie was women. And um, the whole sort of background of that film was the first Magic Mike, which was all about the horrors of capitalism. And then they kind of broadened it out into a more, you know, gender stuff in the second one. And um, Channing Tatum is up for that. And then this movie came out shortly after. And so there was this huge conversation going on at the time about, you know, who movies are made for and the audience. And it's interesting to compare the two films and how they achieve that. I think both really effectively. Um, and you're, I think you're right that that was not something that was being discussed so much at the time. And it's interesting to think about how Magic Mike XXL was uh, a huge financial success and a huge critical success and then and like stars a bunch of men right i mean i love that movie i think it's a better film than this and like that's fine but this film which is actually like starring primarily a female character right and it's a bit sillier the critics were just like what is this i don't understand i mean it's a hard sell i mean it's not a hard sell right but it's a hard sell from a traditional marketing perspective because with magic mike xxl first of all it's a sequel so it's like people already know what Magic Mike is. You get like jokes about Magic Mike and like late night talk shows, like people have heard of it. But then with this, you've got what something which over the past 10 years has now become a rarity, which is a big budget blockbuster, which is completely original. And the main selling point for this film is just it's by yes. the Wachowskis, right? Because it's like you can't really explain this film very clearly in a trailer plot wise in a way that makes it stand out because it is a story about someone just fighting against some alien rich people which is a very common sci-fi slash fantasy theme and the way it should have been marketed is like this is a fairy tale and it's a fairy tale romance it's funny it looks really good but the default for this type of film is just 
look at this awesome like sci-fi action movie and maybe there'll be a joke to show you that it's not super gritty but it's kind of it is gendered in the sense that the default is these films are for men and it's good if women see them as well because women are going to see them anyway because they're there yes <laughs> rather than specifically aiming at women and it's kind of a little bit like what happened with Crimson Peak, uh, Guillermo del Toro's movie, which was marketed as a horror movie and famously was actually a gothic romance, which has been repeated ad nauseum by this film's fans and by del Toro himself. But it's like, yes, it's spooky, but it is explicitly a romance. And this is explicitly a romance. Like, it's what they set out to make. Yes. The Crimson Peak comparison is really good, I think, because I remember seeing the trailer and I don't think actually the trailer for that was massively misleading and I went in and saw the movie and was like great loved it good job (laughs) and probably partially because I actually was at comic-con the year before and like saw del Toro talking about this film and he obviously knew what he was making and represented it accurately but obviously the like men who love horror movies were expecting a different thing and the studio had not gone out of its way to you know, convince them otherwise. And so there were all of these reactions to that movie initially that were like, oh, this wasn't a horror film. But that, I think there was more of a, at least like binary between the two things that they were expecting. Whereas this film is just like, what is going on? (laughs) Like, it's just so strange that, you know. It was also like so funny to rewatch just the amount of terminology they just like dump on you. <laughs> just <laughs> at least 50% of Channing Tatum's dialogue is just him saying terms from this fantasy world. And it's not like the film is hard to understand, it is very easy to understand. You don't actually need to know all these terms, right? But boy, have they had fun. Well, at one point in the commentary, I think I said to you, like, oh my god, if this were a sci-fi novel, which is not a genre that I read particularly, partially because a lot of them are like this, and this is not something I enjoy, like, I would be done within, like, three pages, because all of this jargon nonsense, I would just be like, nope. It's like reading, like, dude. Or just like when you read a fantasy novel and they've decided to rename the word for sword and it's like, I know what a sword is. Like, and this is like all the paperwork is on a sheave and it's like, okay, I can see the etymology for this. It's not necessary, but I respect that you've decided to do this in this particular film, which has multiple slapstick joke scenes about the protagonist cleaning toilets for a living because she's Cinderella. There's a whole background sequence about how alien dinosaurs seeded Earth. There's Eddie Redmayne's whole thing, which we should definitely talk about now. But this film has a lot going on, and not in the sense that it doesn't fit together, because it all fits together in a seamless whole. Well, this is the thing, right? Like, it is very strange. Certain sort of secondary plot details, as I mentioned, make no sense because clearly the explanation has been cut, which I do think is a flaw. I'm not trying to say that this movie is perfect. But basically, it's, as you say, pretty easy to follow. Like, it's, you know... And the tone is correct, you know? It's like, a lot of it is just lighthearted. So, the idea that some people were responding by being like, this is incomprehensible or whatever, I find in slightly bad faith, because it's just, it's just not, like, it's not that difficult, you know? It's quite simple as a story like you know Channing Tatum goes down and finds Mila Kunis on the earth and then 
she gets taken to space and interacts you know, one by one with like the three bad guys and then she and Channing Tatum live happily ever after. Like that's the plot of this movie. Obviously there are, you know, side things going on, but that's essentially there's it. A, there's a sequence where she has to go to the DMV to get yes. a passport. Um, Which is very fun. Yeah. Famously. But, I mean, structurally, it's really not actually that complicated. And um, I think that they do a pretty good job of moving it along, which, again, I'm sure was difficult because they clearly cut out a ton of stuff. But I don't find it that complicated. It's very watchable. All the performances are engaging. I do think Channing Tatum is slightly wooden, but uh, all of his dialogue is expository, so it's not really his fault. But when he's when he's looking at Mila and they're looking at each other, it's great. They've got the look, and if you've got the look, a lot of other stuff can just gently fall by the wayside. There's a lot of smoldering in this film. He's very muscular yet non-threatening. They've got a lot of that situation going on. They've studied the holy texts of the corny sci-fi fantasy romance manual, and they have come up with the perfect man, which is a guy who, like, he's really loyal. He looks like Channing Tatum. He's got wings. He's got cool rollerblade boots. He senses his true love by smelling her, which is a thing that a lot of people are into for some reason. I respect (laughs) her tastes. And also... Just to make sure that he has one imperfection, because everyone does have does have to have one imperfection. He does bleach his hair. <laughs> um, I mean, canonically, he is technically quote unquote half albino, whatever that is. I don't think you can be half albino, but he he has bleach blonde hair, which looks very bad. He's got pointy ears, which look amazing, um, and he wears eyeliner. And I think canonically, he does wear eyeliner because none of the other characters are, apart from Mila Kunis who is wearing a lot of makeup in this movie, which we were actually talking about in the commentary as well. Like, this is a film where the main character is very clearly and intentionally wearing a full face of makeup, including foundation, which actually is pretty rare. Like, usually the female lead in a blockbuster is either wearing no makeup makeup, or if it's like an event, she's wearing her kind of glamorous going to a party makeup. But Mila Kunis' character is like, well, I'm going to wear false eyelashes and a full eyeshadow to clean toilets because that's how I make myself feel better. And it's great. I love it. And they haven't done the thing where they CGI people's faces into perfect smoothness. So the women in this actually do all look like real women, including the ones who are meant to be immortal evil alien gods. Yeah, I was. I found that incredibly refreshing. Like, really enjoyable. Um, the makeup stuff was interesting. There were a couple moments where she definitely should not have had that makeup on. For instance, after she was rescued <laughs> from her evil wedding and then was like, you know, I'm going to put my normal clothes back on and then somehow had her makeup back. And her I was like, I changed. don't think so. I don't think that that would be happening, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, Channing Tatum's hair situation is an abomination. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> he has a bleached Why? beard. <laughs> Why would they do that? It's so unflattering. <laughs> But in a way, adds to the charm of this strange, strange film, which both looks great and is also slightly like, what's happening here at all times? Which, fine, sure. I mean, I have seen this film now, I think, five times. Too many times. Um, Possibly more than five, actually. But um, even watching this for the millionth time yesterday... I was still like, wow, there's some costuming details I've not noticed because there are so many background characters in all of the alien scenes. 
the costumes in this are by Kim Barrett, who have done almost every Wachowski project. I think the 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 she didn't do Sensei and she didn't do like one of their movies, but she did all of the others, including The Matrix, which really kind of kicked off the beginning of her career. And she is one of the best costume designers in Hollywood. She's incredible, and she specializes obviously in this kind of fantasy costume. And the are just so gorgeous. They are so detailed. Like in this, she gets to run wild with all of these princess dresses. I mean, obviously the kind of the most famous one is the one that Mila Kunis wears to her wedding to the evil brother who's trying to kidnap her because there's always got to be like an evil English brother who's trying to kidnap her. Um, and it's she's wearing this headdress, which is also a chandelier and has all this like red and white makeup on. But also in the background, there are so many amazing opulent costumes and they've got these creepy guards that are wearing like Lucho Libra masks and have their arms amputated and replaced with laser guns. There's so much happening in this film. Well, the great thing about all the dresses is that they are just full throttle, 100%, like, sequins, glitter. Like, there is not one single so much level of restraint going on at all, which really fits <laughs> into the movie's attitude about everything, right? I mean, I can think of other, you know, fantasy films that have incredible costumes, but there's always an effort to sort of modulate in some way to fit with the aesthetic of the movie or whatever which works perfectly in that situation and in this it's just like no the colors are gonna be all out there's gonna be some shiny stuff like let's do it and it's incredibly enjoyable to look at the whole thing is very fun and it really works with the film because the film is as i said like it mostly looks really good but it's excessive the movie is excessive in generally every way, right? Yeah. Like it's trying to be this sort of opulent fairy tale, non-realistic story. And so it makes sense that all the visuals are sort of turned up to 11, if you will. The outsides of the spaceship, is, as you were saying, are like Rococo. Outsides and insides are gold. just like <laughs> like gold nonsense filigree everywhere. And, you know, great. Excellent. And it's the classic kind of oh it's a allegory thing where you get in movies where it's like oh you get to enjoy the beauty but also of course remember that the beauty is evil and the result of like the capitalist villains kind of literally sucking the life force out of humankind but also thinking about it now th that kind of actually is better than in the hunger games like the hunger games films are brilliant and hold together better than Jupiter Ascending. They also are very different totally, so they're kind of aiming for a different thing. But I was always slightly disappointed by the costumes they have for the capital characters in the Hunger Games movies, because while the films do a really great job of kind of exploring the whole propaganda aspects that they have in the book, um, especially kind of the way that Katniss is manipulated in the later uh, sequels, the actual costumes they have for the capital are not as out there as they should be. Like, they're much more extreme in the books. And also a lot of the time in the capital scenes, you have extras that are basically wearing quite similar clothes or all wearing clothes that look really similar to sort of what Lady Gaga was wearing in real life that year. Whereas they're all meant to be really individual. Whereas in this film, they literally do have individual looks for so many different people who do not have a single line or just standing there in the background, uh, which is really kind of necessary for this kind of thing. So I think as a kind of cohesive whole, the costumes in this movie are actually better than the costumes in The Hunger Games, which I'm sure had a much bigger creative team behind them and probably a lot more yes, money. Yes, I would imagine so. Although, as we have mentioned, the budget for this film was quite sizable to my 
amazing. Oh, yeah. Like, how? And then Warner Brothers asked him back to make another Matrix film, so they're going to recoup that situation. I wonder if there was some deal <laughs> where they were like, give us, you know, we'll, like, we'll do the Matrix if you give us another film Although only this. one of them is directed. I'm very curious, because, like, they did... I can't remember. Yeah, which, only one of yeah. them is coming back. Um, yeah. It's Lana. Yeah, like, after this film and Sensei, they did officially retire. And it, it wasn't like, oh, we're, we're kind of leaving. It was retirement where I actually did think that they were permanently or at least long-term leaving the business because they shut down their offices where they had all their employees for their business. Like, that's not something you do if you're just like, oh, I'm taking a break. But apparently they were brought back. So, um, or did they announce retirement? Yeah. But they also don't, I mean, it was like very quiet. They don't really announce anything. Yes. They're very, like, yeah. reticent. But anyway, this film's rich people. I think we should talk about Eddie Redmayne because that is, of course, one of the most iconic it's elements time. of the film. <laughs> yes, just splendid. Just a splendid performance. So, as many of our listeners will no doubt recall, this movie came out, I guess it was later, actually, than I was remembering. So, I just paired it with Magic Mike XXL, which was very much a summer movie, and I they were definitely discussed in conjunction with each other, but this must have come out much later than I was remembering because it was very much talked about together with his Oscar play that year, which was uh, uh, The Theory of Everything, where he played Stephen Hawking, and everyone was like, oh my god, is he going to lose the Oscar because of this nonsense performance, which did not happen. But um, really impressive work. <laughs> it was an amazing thing to see those two performances being talked about in conjunction with each other, because truly two things could not be more different within the same industry. Um, I actually think he's really great in The Theory of Everything. It's a very boring movie. It's not the sort of thing that I would ever see if it were not something that was going to win an Oscar. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen, but like it's just not very interesting. But I actually think he's very, very good in it. It's not a travesty of an Oscar win. But uh, compared to this, let's just say it's really uh, quite different. I actually have a quote from Eddie Redmayne's creative Please background for this. go for it. Which is, I think some people will already have heard it. So like basically he, first of all, there was a background for this, which is sort of implied in the film, but they don't fully go into it when they're talking about Channing Tatum's backstory. So Eddie Redmayne said, his larynx had been ripped out by this wolfman, so I made this slightly bold choice, which I thought was right, of talking like this for the whole film, which I felt suited the costumes and the extremity of the world. But in retrospect, it may have been too much. No, it was perfect, Eddie. And then he says, I love the Wachowskis. I've never felt so free on set. Lana would just scream notes like, do it like an accountant. But my interpretation of that was to shout really loudly, which is very odd because I have a kind, gentle accountant. <laughs> Amazing, amazing. So this is the thing, right? So I remember seeing this and thinking he was absolutely just so entertaining. Hysterical. Right. He's so but not good thinking it. it was like good as such, right? Like I thought it was funny, but like in a sort of ironic way. And I have seen him in a lot of stuff. My theory about Eddie Redmayne is that he is an extremely talented actor with unbelievably bad taste, which I think is not something that people generally think of as like a thing that happens in Hollywood, right? Like we often say, oh, so-and-so needs a better agent. I mean, fucking this Tom is what, Hardy. Yes, so Tom like Tom Hardy. Hardy is the key example of this, right? He just has bad taste. It happens. Sometimes people do need better agents, but sometimes they just, they just don't pick the right things. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And Eddie Redmayne has consistently picked 
bad, like boring right. historical films. And you know, he, he, I don't think he can be saved from himself. What can I say? Earlier in his career, he did a couple more interesting things. The best movie he's made by far is a movie called Savage Grace, where he played Julianne Moore's son. It was based on um, a real sort of American uh, industrial family, I think. It's sort of mid-20th century. Does he have sex with Hugh Dancy? Yes. He is having sex with his okay. mother, Julianne Moore, in that movie. It's this weird incest situation, again, based on real life. And he's playing this like very weird son of this guy very uns- uh, this woman very unsettling it's really really good performance the movie is very good obviously very fucked up and then he sort of transitioned from that into these like banal nonsense films and now he's very rich and powerful right so, so i mean congratulations anyway. yeah. to him like he's not my favorite actor or anything because he does this boring stuff but i do actually think he's very very talented and i wish he would do something more interesting but rewatching this was so like fascinating and entertaining to me because I was like oh no wait you're not sort of just bad in this you're actually doing a great job and you have just succumbed to like the fucking Aeronauts or whatever which is his next boring film so Um, boring and uh he's just a pure delight in this it is so campy and over the top in just a lot of hand acting a lot of posing a lot of as we said wild line delivery oh my god famously it's just the the sort of the vocal stuff is great because he sort of swings between this very raspy low sort of classic english villain in a action because movie because Channing Tatum tore his teeth as the larynx out with his teeth yep and then occasionally just like screaming something at the top of his <laughs> lungs including the classic line uh is it what is it i create life and destroy and it. Destroy yes. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, just the way he lounges in his very dramatic clothing, his whole thing with Neela Kunis when she shows up later is quite something because and he's she's he's like oh you're the reincarnation of my mother so there's there's a lot going on conversations with that. With them. <laughs> um, it's just it's delicious. It is a delicious performance, the best in the film for my money. Like oh yeah. And it's really sad. It's the one you pick. <laughs> because all of the critics were just like, what the fuck is this? And I think it put him off doing anything weird again. And now he's doing the aeronauts. And it's like, Eddie, just go for it. Just go also, for it. Every single British actor, like the white men actors, by law, all have to play a villain in a yes. Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> that is, they are legally bound to do so. And... I would say that Eddie Redmayne pulled out the stops for his one and only example of that. He went full Alan Rickman. He should have gone and become Alan Rickman. But instead, he became the more harmless version of Benedict Cumberbatch. However, Benedict Cumberbatch's main uh, villain roles were playing a dragon, which obviously most people don't care about, and the shit Star Trek movie, where he was a shit character that was whitewashed. So um, I guess you'd get, you know... You get the, the, the balance of the force rebalances your career afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll see what the future holds, but I really do think this was a career highlight for Mr. Redmayne. Just tremendous. And, yeah, for sure. Uh, it, he's, it's a cult movie. People rewatch it all the time, so it will live on in infamy forever. Congratulations. <laughs> 
but it really saddens me that he must think back on this in like embarrassment when in fact it should be the opposite. Like, I mean, if any of us ever meets him, we have to make sure to say, Mr. Redmayne, I loved your work in Jupiter Ascending. Yes. Just all of our listeners, remember that. Yeah. Memorize that line and make sure to share it with the man who is currently starring in the Harry Potter sequel franchise. Oh. Forever. Still, three more movies to go. Oh my god, just thinking about that is, like, exhausting to me. I'm very curious, because, like, obviously Harry Potter is the hugest money spinner for Warner Brothers, but those movies are just gonna make less and less money. Like, the second one made significantly less money than the first. There's a lot of controversy hanging over them. They're not getting positive reviews, so... I, I don't think it's possible for it to lose enough money for them to actually cancel a Harry Potter franchise, but it really... They seem bad. It's re- I don't know. Yeah, I will be very curious to see what happens. I mean, I know like Harry Potter people who saw the second one and were like, that was terrible. So, I mean, yeah. that's significant. I mean, the Harry Potter people I know also mostly didn't think the first one was great, but they were sort of like, eh, it was okay. And the second one, they were all like, that was a horrible movie. So, do they all go and see the third one just out of, you know, inertia? I don't know. But, um... Yeah, if you're going to sign up to be in a big franchise, that is not the one to have chosen, unfortunately, right? Like, I mean, you know, Tom Hiddleston got Marvel, and his career was born out of that, and uh, Eddie Redmayne already had a career, you know, he's fine, but it's just really bad luck to have signed on to that. Though also the script for the first one was garbage, so perhaps he should have not made that decision, so... I mean, everyone likes him in it, so I suppose... Yeah, you know. no, it's it's not like... Again, yeah. his career's fine. It's not like he's done, but... Ugh. Well, let's see. What else do we have to discuss? I think we should um, briefly touch on the action sequences in this movie. Yes. Which I think are very interesting, both in the larger uh, Hollywood context and also just uh, in comparison to each other, because we discussed this in the commentary, but... Um, some of them are much better than average in terms of, like, we compared them to the Marvel movies specifically and the commentary track, sort of inevitably. And then the some are not so great, which also I mean, I think inevitable. basically all of them are good apart from the final act, right? It has the classic problem of most of these films, which is that final battle sequence is really overlong and not very interesting. And aesthetically, it's kind of, it all takes place on Jupiter in this sort of mine and it all just looks you know, like hellfire and people kind of slamming into each other and it just goes on for way too long. It's not interesting. But the sequence that kind of was really wowing both of us, including Morgan, who like doesn't really find action that interesting, is towards the beginning, there's the scene where Channing Tatum really unleashes his hover boot powers and it all takes place around dawn in Chicago. And kind of when this film was being made, there was sort of quite a bit of coverage about this, partly because Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis were constantly visible around Chicago because <laughs> they had to film it for months. But also this film, this action sequence was mostly practical kind of stunt work. There's various sort of technical things to do with how they did the helicopter filming that I don't really understand, but were apparently very innovative. But watching that sequence, it's very noticeable how good the Wachowskis are at this kind of kinetic action, you know, because we have like five or six of these huge $200 million action adventure movies every year now. Most of them are directed by filmmakers who do not have very much expertise in action. Like famously, the Marvel franchise especially 
you know, most of the directors are not action directors and they have kind of in-house people who are action coordinators and do a lot of kind of collaboration there, which sometimes works and a lot of the time just means that you have something that's quite bland to watch. In this scene, you just have like this really gorgeous scene, first of all, because the colours are really purple and like it looks like this beautiful sunrise and the characters are always kind of like shaded in an interesting way. So it's like nice to watch but also all of the movement is very clear. It's very well storyboarded. Like they know what's up in terms of direction and propulsion and that sort of thing. And you don't really need to know anything about that to just watch the scene and be like, this is better than the many sequences you see where it's like just someone swinging around on a wire in a green screen, you know? So they're good at it. And it also was making me think of Alicia Battle Angel, which is a, an okay film. It's not, I didn't enjoy it as much as this, but it's directed by Robert Rodriguez, and he's another one of these really experienced directors who makes all of the action sequences in that film really punchy. Like, there's this whole subplot in Alita Battle Angel, which is about the main character basically doing roller derby, but, like, with droids, whatever. And, like, every one of those action scenes, I was like, this rules! It's so awesome! Um, and it's, like, quite rare to see that, because most of these directors are, like, not good well, the key to good action, right? And I actually, I really like action movies if they're done well. It's just that most of them aren't. Like the latest. I mean, kudos to the Fast and Furious franchise for being immaculate. Yeah, I have not seen them, but like the last Mission Impossible movie, which we podcasted about, I thought was one of the best movies of last year. Like it was it's just brilliant, fantastic, right? And that's obviously an extreme example. Like the those movies are just like off the hook, but. The key to making this stuff good is obviously you have to storyboard incredibly well. Well, so you have to choreograph the action really well and also storyboard really well. So when we've talked a lot about the action in Captain America, the Winter Soldier in many contexts, but people will often point to that and be like, oh, that was so great because the fighting was so well choreographed. And uh, I'm not trying to like diminish those comments at all because I think the hand-to-hand coordination of the combat in that film is really impressive, but the way it's shot is terrible, right? So watching that for me is, I can enjoy it on a certain level because I like that movie a lot and I like the characters and it's interesting, but as an action movie, it's just like, oh my God, please, no. The editing and the cinematography and in a lot of cases, the lighting is like dodge. Right. Whereas, and then once you get to Avengers Endgame, it's... Yeah, like, please <laughs> deliver me from this. Um, yeah, so that those are like the sort of range of the Marvel stuff, right? So Winter Soldier is like, this is not very well done, but there's enough here in that level that like I can still enjoy it. And then the sort of really bad stuff is like unwatchable to me. But a movie like this is they actually know how to shoot this stuff. And it makes it so much more enjoyable to watch I do think the sequence that we're talking about goes on for too long at a certain point like it's not achieving anything dramatically but you know they're flying around through the city on these various contraptions and um sort of you know blowing up buildings whatever and uh the camera is knows how to follow the movement of these vehicles in a way that is incredibly satisfying to watch and as you say the coloring is done really well and that kind of thing, especially, I mean, it was fun to watch on a, you know, a laptop screen, but I definitely remember in the theater being like, oh, wow, this is like really fun compared to, I think it was Age of Ultron that had come out that summer. Oh, yeah, 2015. Yeah. And, oh. but, but whatever it was that I was comparing it to, like there had just been some bad blockbusters and it was like, oh, right, like it can actually be fun. 
Like, this kind of thing can actually be fun. But it is a real skill. And then skill. you take a brief pause for Mila Kunis to be like, I like dogs. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we mentioned this earlier, but all the sort of humor, intentional humor in this movie is very good. Also, the flirtation is uh, exceptional. And so you have a combination of, like, really well-shot action sequences, the sort of fairy tale princess stuff that is very satisfying, genuinely funny things. Like, it's just a very satisfying combination of stuff if you like those elements. Um, some of it's nonsense, but that's okay. And uh, yeah, good movie. Should have made more money, but it's okay because people have watched it zillions of times since it was in theaters. So it has had a long, long life. And, uh, and in vociferous defense, even of it's most unpopular scene which is the dmv sequence where mila kunis has to go and get like her princess paperwork um and that was something that came up in a lot of reviews at the time and um re-watching it morgan was like well this scene is fine because it's really fun anyway and it it kind of does reference back to all of these other kind of dystopian fantasy kind of movies like it's a, explicitly they're referencing brazil to a certain extent because they literally have terry gilliam in a cameo at the end there but also that scene is very much a trans analogy where it's about this character who's found out that she's a princess and now has to prove it but the government won't let her and she has to go through all these hoops to finally get recognized and have her princess status public and it's like this has a very clear message behind it um which is not widely recognized well and the scene directly after that i think like she's now one of these you know royal people and channing tatum's like well now i am just i'm an underling whatever and she has a whole speech about how like She's changed, but she hasn't changed. She's still the same person she always was, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's a clear subtext in a lot of the movie, and it's not something that you would necessarily pick up on if you didn't know what was going on, right? Or if it wasn't something that you were looking for, but it's definitely in the film. I think what they do really well in this is that it's definitely there, but all of it is feeding into other thematic elements where if you are someone who just wants to be like, I'm enjoying this princess story. Like it's, it can be read on that level or even the DMV scene, which I remember everyone laughing at in my theater. So like why people I were mean, complaining it's an about that. It's intrinsically funny like, scene. It's not like a boring pause. Right. Like it's funny. <laughs> that also plays into the movie's themes about the hell of capitalism and the fact that you have to go jump through all these hoops and like everything is so you know, bureaucratic and nonsensical fits with the idea that like this society is kind of toxic and just like doesn't make any sense, right? So there's, it's operating on a number of thematic levels across the board. And I think it's really smart in that way. Like it's not the deepest movie I've ever seen, but they definitely know what they're doing, I think. And um, I think it's really well done on that level. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's present in pretty much all of their work as well. Like they always have pretty blatant political themes in their films. And yeah, they're not like complex and deep for a lot for much for a lot of it, but it's still apparently enough that people are having arguments about like what the Matrix really means and that sort of thing. So I'm curious to see what happens in the Matrix 4 in that regard. Yeah, it will be quite fascinating to see that movie released in the current climate or the climate in three years or whatever, you know. Um, co-written by David Mitchell, oh, author of Cloud oh, Atlas. Just kill me now wonderful news (laughs) i can't wait um a a delightful collaboration do we have anything else 
to say about Jupiter Ascending? Um, I think only that in this in this rewatch, I finally found out that the blonde woman whose identity she steals at the beginning to donate her eggs is Vanessa Kirby. The lady who's in her underwear and is absurdly ripped is Vanessa Kirby, who is now very famous and is starring in all these a- action movies. So, um, hi, Vanessa. <laughs> Terrifyingly cut abs. <laughs> Truly. I was like, no one looks like that. No human. <laughs> We have to assume that that character is canonically some kind of professional athlete. Yes, it's the only. Because she's not just like regular slim Hollywood women. She looks like an Olympic. I don't even know what. If there's some kind of combat sport that involves fighting people purely with your abs, <laughs> it's that. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, I saw a professional athlete at the U.S. Open the other day who had like a. a a crap thing and you could see her abs and like they were almost not as terrifying as that woman's so like, and they were pretty terrifying so really kudos so you know congratulations um yeah jupiter ascending solid film available on netflix in the united states watch with our commentary like Amazon in the UK, is that right? Yeah, I watched on it. It's, it's it's like free on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Um yeah, we have our commentary track. We also have Another Patreon uh, mini-sode, which is our North and South mini-sode, where we are discussing the TV miniseries, which we both enjoyed watching. Richard Armitage absolutely kickstarted his career. Um, we obviously have the North and South book club episode we did a few weeks ago, which was great, and I highly recommend listening to if you've not already, because um, we enjoyed reading that old book, and you do not necessarily need to have read it yourselves. No. To appreciate our voices. I don't think so at all, <laughs> although I would recommend that book too. Thank you so much again to Elizabeth and Carolyn for both being generous enough to sponsor this episode. You are wonderful. If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon yourself, you can find us at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, you can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I recently reviewed the new Amazon series Carnival Row, which is being erroneously compared to this movie. It sucks. <laughs> and it's not like a, oh, fun female gaze situation. It's just not very good. So please trust my opinion. Also, you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverInvestedPod. We are on Tumblr at OverInvestedPodcast. And our website is OverInvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.